have to say that communication and information, of course, everybody, everybody knows it's important. And um, I could say that and sit down, really. Um, I'm not an expert in communication and giving information, but I do have very strong feelings about how it is done, especially about the language that we use, because I think that language is one of the most important tools that we have in healthcare. Language which is both verbal and written can inspire or alienate, it can cherish or it can insult. It's increasingly recognised that communication between clinicians and patients actually has a huge impact on the output. If it's done well, you get a better recovery. You get fewer returns and fewer relapses. And uh, research demonstrates this um, extremely well. Language is an extremely complex human institution. It's the medium of personal interaction. It's the medium of social life of professional disciplines and of complex organisations, both large and small. And for the most part, it actually performs astoundingly well, and we should remember that, with great creativity and efficiency. Importantly, though, for me, is it is also the medium of healing when we look at it from the healthcare perspective. My interest um, in the way we communicate comes from three different perspectives – as a healthcare professional, as a participant observer of my mother's care, and as an investigator. My background is in nursing. Not all, but most of it has been in the care of sick children, an area which a lot of people find quite difficult to go into. Children are very direct, and they expect you to be very honest um, in the way that you communicate with them, and they don't like rhetoric and bluff. And that can be very hard when you're managing really complex situations. Saying what you mean and saying it simply, however, is actually important for all um, patients and is an art which I think we many of us still need to practice. Over the last eight years, I have, and my family, on several occasions, had the opportunities to observe my mother's care directly. Our experiences, I have to say, are not dissimilar from those that have been recently reported by the Patients' Association in its fourth annual report of patient stories, um, and are also very similar to um, some of um, the content of the latest state of the um, uh, care report of the CQC. My mother, now nearly 95, has had a series of hospital admissions on some occasions requiring rehabilitation in social care afterwards and most recently um, an admission into a nursing home. She's a Cambridge graduate. Her subject was English. She and her family expect professionals to treat her as an individual and with respect. Frequently this has absolutely been the case. No doubt about it, she has had extraordinarily good care some of the best communications that she's had have been from student nurses. But on occasions, on admission, she's been extremely confused, and this hasn't been helped by the fact that she's been moved from ward to ward. So early impressions gained by staff have therefore been very different from the individual that we know and love. And that has meant that at times that the assessment of her has been imperfect and has resulted, quite obviously at times, with very patronising attitude towards her 
and incredulity on the part of staff that we believe that she can be the individual that she was, being interested and interesting again. On many occasions, their assumptions and inadequate assessment, particularly interestingly for me, something that I hadn't perhaps myself recognised in the past, was particularly of her social history, limited the knowledge of her as a person in her own right to such an extent that their ability to respond to her fully um, and to um, plan for her appropriately in the long term were compromised. My attention during her last stay was drawn to the RCN Alzheimer's Society document, This Is Me, and I think that this one document has made the most extraordinary difference to the way that people have behaved with her since. My third perspective as an investigator of clinical services has meant that I've observed a very large range of practitioners and assessed um, quite a, a variety of patient records. And it's those experiences that I'm going to largely draw on now. And it is why, having looked at and seen all of these things, I think it's really important to communicate well and to carefully craft information. Language is always changing and expanding, not least because it's a, a human medium full of curiosity and fascination and mutual feeling. Importantly, it facilitates far more than it obstructs. Much of what obstructs good communication in healthcare, and I give you an example is in, in general practice, is actually not about um, the linguistic code that they use, but actually the fact that they need more time to listen and respond and communicate with their patients and explain things to them. Many staff find it very difficult just to stand still, to reflect and consider what could be done differently. My observations fall into nine broad groups, which I've further divided into two categories. The first is language which is between staff, and the second is language between staff, patients, their families and carers. All communications, however, are important. The use of ineffective language occurs in all walks of life. However, in healthcare, when staff are under pressure, if um, a command is actually um, misheard or ineffective, it can have very serious um, consequences. Some language, albeit inadvertently, tends to shift the notion of blame from us to the patients. And, for example, bed blockers or frequent flyers. By using terms like this, it implies that actually patients want to return or they want to stay Often, actually, the reverse is quite true. Many patients do, of course, repeatedly come into hospital. But I put to you that that's often because their discharge planning, as I was describing earlier, was not good enough. Or that the communications to um, primary care staff was too vague. Or the systems to actually support them at home were not actually um, uh, robust enough and too stretched. The failure, therefore, is not the patient's. And first-hand experience of my mother's handover of care after she left hospital left her with delayed responses and real confusion amongst the various professionals that were supposed to be caring for her. 
An unpublished review this year by the NHS Institute for Innovation Improvement and the Social Care Institute for Excellence found very similar um, things to what we have often found um, when we have been uh, closely uh, following my mother's care. The Institute has recently developed a Care Home Connect programme, in part due to their review, but also in response to a National Voices view that what people care about, and I quote, is that organisations and services working together as a team around an individual's needs to support them. So this piece of work was in response to that. Communications used um, between um, managers in healthcare is often very different to that used in daily conversations um, by healthcare professionals. Managers tend to talk about targets and strategy, which has a very bureaucratic feel about it, whilst clinical staff more commonly talk about patients and care. Examples of bureaucratic communication are those that refer to patients as units in a system, the drivers, the levers, units of demand or resource. Patients now flow, and their outcome of care is described as an output. I'm not suggesting that this is a moral issue, but it is a dilemma. Healthcare organisations are, amongst other things, complex, organised administrative and economic systems with technical sub-languages. There's also, however, a political dimension, of course, and we talk about service users or customers. And this is intended to represent patients as... Um, essentially consumers of healthcare in a marketplace, not so much being cared for, but being supplied with a service. Vocabulary like this is drawn from economic organisational thinking rather than, I think, from a people perspective. And I think rather worryingly, it's language like this that's often picked up by clinical staff and then incorporated in the language that's used with patients. The last group in this first category is black humour, which actually, thank goodness, to a very large extent has been extinguished because of political correctness. But it is one way that healthcare professionals have been able to manage their natural sympathies to various situations that they have to face. The problem is that when black humour is used and overheard, it can give a very different um, impression to the one that the healthcare team are probably wanting to portray and lacks empathy. My second um, category is the language between staff and patients and their families and carers. And the first is um, inconsistent and confusing um, language. This group is um, clearly linked to the one um, I mentioned earlier, which is the ineffective group. It's important for patients that they have clear and unambiguous language and that it can't be misinterpreted. And it's particularly important, I think, now because records are accessed um, more frequently by other professionals outside of healthcare and, importantly, with patients themselves. The inconsistent use of words by different staff in the same um, care team about the same issue can be extremely confusing um, for patients. For example, commonly used words like lump, bump, tumour, growth can convey very different things to, um, to patients. And if different words are used to describe the same problem to the same patient, 
it's not surprising that patients actually misunderstand and misinterpret what is being said to them. For example, I think I'd rather be told I've got a lump than a tumour. And vital words such as this should be recorded in the notes and the reasons why that particular word has been used. A qualitative study of prescribing decisions in 20 general practices in England identified 14 different categories of misunderstanding, including um, conflicting information given by different doctors and the failure to communicate in records why they had made the decision that they had. Researchers also demonstrated clear links between the quality of the um, uh, doctor-patient communication and the levels of patient satisfaction, treatment adherence, and um, the way that they then go on to recover. And I'm sure that the same is absolutely true of other healthcare professionals too. (coughs) Bupa has recently published guidance to help friends and relatives and carers overcome some of the difficulties of communicating with people um, with dementia. The challenge, of course, is to maintain meaningful conversations and communications with this group. And the guidance offers advice which, actually, my family have found extremely helpful over recent weeks. And it includes um, these um, issues in the toolkit. Record-keeping invariably features in inquiry and review work. Indeed, sometimes it's the focus of an inquiry, and I'll I'll give you just one example of a piece of work that I picked up from a coroner who was far from satisfied with the way records were kept when an elderly person died unexpectedly in a community hospital. Not only did I find that it was possible to find 11 places in one ward where one patient's records could be recorded, but also when I looked in the records the amount of jargon and at times unambiguous and unclear statements really caused considerable confusion. Which brings me to the next group um, I'm going to talk about, which is jargon, abbreviations and shorthand. And this often presents, I think, a real dilemma for healthcare staff because abbreviations are really swift and efficient ways of, of recording inpatient records. But patients and their families actually need full information and understanding. And it goes back to what I said about them looking in their own records and sometimes writing in them and managing them. Whilst managing children's services, um, the parents of a child came to see me extraordinarily distressed. And I'm going to give you this example as an example of why shortenings are so dangerous. They came to me because they had seen in their child's records the shortening HV. They thought that their child had been diagnosed as HIV positive. Now, clearly, it wasn't just the, the, the shortening that was at, at issue here. The fact that actually the staff hadn't told them that they were being referred to the health visiting service was also a problem. And that's why I think it's so important that the verbal and the written communications go hand in glove. It is particularly important, of course, to think carefully about the use of shorthand when somebody seldom accesses into healthcare or whose first language is not English. Not only do these um, individuals have to deal with pain and uncertainty, but they also have to try and understand a very unfamiliar language filled with acronyms. The language that we use during communications can both reflect and shape our thinking and, importantly, I think, our behaviour. 
And so my next group about demeaning, patronising and disrespectful language is one which I think I find the most painful. It's um, most commonly used with regard to elderly patients and, um, and patients using mental um, health services. Collectively, probably our most vulnerable patients that come into healthcare and the least able often to be able to speak up for themselves. Disrespectful language like hysteric or idiot were commonly used in mental health um, services and again has thankfully stopped, I think, largely due to political correctness. But across healthcare, we still use words like difficult, uncooperative, which are not only disrespectful but hugely judgmental about that individual and potentially incredibly inflammatory. And I heard one example of it on Radio 4 this week by a, um, a nurse saying, um, talking about granny dumping. I, you know, I just think we shouldn't be using this, and particularly in public. And then I go on to my um, next group, the last, which is unhelpful and bland language. When did you last inquire about a loved one? What sort of response did you get over the phone to your inquiry? And were you brushed off with bland, euphemistic formula that under undermined your confidence and the ability of those staff to deliver um, good care? I think that phrases which have been said to me about my mother, like, she slept well, there was no change, that she was up and about, she's fine, doesn't tell me anything. And when you start to inquire further, quite rightly and naturally, the staff have to respond carefully because they can't be absolutely certain to whom they're speaking. So there is a real dilemma there about our ability to um, manage our language, which are bland descriptors of people, but actually to also give full enough information to the people that um, really care about the person in the care system. Unhelpful, misleading, inappropriate communications, full of jargon, all feed into a much broader agenda which lies at the heart of why I find this such a fascinating subject. The provision of dignified, respectful, compassionate care across the NHS is a requirement that all organisations now have. It's embedded within the values of the NHS constitution. And I would love to add to everyone counts, every word counts. Recent inquiries and reports and media programmes have all revealed really upsetting stories, which we all know about. And I'm absolutely sure and convinced, because I see it, that there are huge improvements across the NHS. There is too little attention actually paid to those improvements and the really good care. Unfortunately, our language, like that expression I described on Radio 4 this week, actually frequently betray us. So, in conclusion, I just have a few suggestions about how communication and communicating information to patients might improve in the future, which will assist, I hope, the integration and coordination of care. They're not clever. I think that we need to be much more systematic and committed to the approach we take, to the way we teach people, particularly in undergraduate programmes, some of the communication skills. We absolutely should consult patients more about the writing style and the presentation um, of documents. I think we should ask um, every trust to draw up a, a blacklist of jargon and stop staff from, from using them, particularly when they might be seen and heard by patients. 
I would love to see that the clinical leaders actually don't pick up some of this bureaucratic language that I've talked about. But most importantly for me, actually, it's about listening to patients and the public. And I, I'm sure all of you have been entranced, as I have, by the BBC Listening Project, which has highlighted, and I quote from them, it's surprising what you hear when you listen. And I think what we have to remember is that patients do listen to what we say, and they hear sometimes the wrong things. So taking these and other simple measures which are built into healthcare systems might actually ensure that in future we give um, a rather more um, individualised and humanised information to patients in the future. Thank you very much indeed.